0: Today we bring you a special episode of The Academic Citizen. Considering the current protests, shutdowns and uncertainties on campuses around the country, it seems important that we take some time to really listen to the views of protesting students. To this effect, we bring you an in-depth interview with Kefense Mkari, who is the incoming president of the Students' Representative Council at WITS. Kefense, as well as being incoming president of the SRC, is a second-year student majoring in finance and mathematics. Previous to being elected to the SRC, he was chairperson of the School of Mathematics Student Council. He matriculated from Macfese High School in Pretoria just a few years ago with distinctions in science and maths.
1: Where should we start? I think perhaps maybe you can give us your view of the current position of the student leaders in terms of the protests
2: that are happening at the moment. We are calling for free, quality, and decolonized education. On the decolonization, I mean each and every country that seeks to you know develop itself, the first thing it does it is teach its people about the country itself. So we want our education to be decolonized so that we can be able to relate to the content that we are taught from first-hand experience. Like now, it's very difficult to conceptualize and digest the material that you are taught because most of it is not practical in our economy, which is the African economy. And I think it's deliberate that you are taught how to make a minority rich and how to become, you know, laborers for the white monopoly capital. I think it's a way of perpetuating colonization in itself, because I think we're still hooked to the same chains that were on our forefathers, chains of slavery. It's just that now they are doing it in a more modified way, whereby after you graduate and you get your honours. You're going to work for some company that's going to give you 16.5 per month. And that is not a living wage. Things are, exp- are expensive. On top of that, you can't even own assets with the amount of money that you are going to be paid. You, you are subjected to liabilities for the rest of your life. So we are saying we want free, quality, and decolonized education. We want an education that will emancipate an African child. So that he can go back in his village and build a plantation, so that he can go back at his village and open up a law firm, so that he can go back at his village and explore the soil that's there, you know, in terms of agriculture, in terms of mining, in terms of geography, and all other things. For as long as this education is not decolonized, it can never be for Africans. And therefore, Africa will always suffer from the exploitation that it suffers from especially when you look at the minerals. you know, When you look at companies in the London Stock Exchange, they are making the money that they are making out of Africa's minerals. And we want to start reclaiming what's ours. That's why we want to decolonize this education after we get it for free.
1: Yeah, I think this is very important for listeners to understand that students are arguing for a very broad set of transformations that they want to see also in Mm -hmm. in their learning and in their teaching and i think this is especially powerful coming from you as a student of science mathematics and finance right so what i want to understand is how do students feel about the time frame like yes decolonization of education needs to happen transformation of the curriculum needs to happen is it possible for it to happen
2: now we understand that it's a process but then the greatest question here is, is there will? That's the most important question. Is there will to decolonize this education? Is there will for the government to give us education? And without a doubt, I can say no. And that's what we are trying to enforce right here. You know, because most of the time when we speak about transformation, a lot of people speak about it on principle, but they never implement it, You know. You would have um, faculty meetings on transformation, you know, the teaching and learning transformation committees. Whenever they have their symposiums, they never even invite students, you know. So there's no will to decolonize this education. And what we are looking at right now is enforcing that will, you know. And I think it's very important that we don't overlook this because the major problem here is that the autonomy that universities have, you know, they become very arrogant, you know. They just want to run things the way that they want to run them, and no one must come and change them. So what we're doing now is that we're saying to the government, you must enforce these universities to have the will to decolonize education. And people say that it's impossible. It's not impossible. It's a it's an easy thing as long as you have will. The first thing that you need to do is to teach people about their country. If it was according to me, I would say each and every student that comes into university must be taught South African Sociology. It should be compulsory, so that they know the state of their country. They know what the material conditions of their country, so that when they become the doctors and lawyers, instead of seeking to go to something or overseas, they will first realize that in fact, these particular set of skills and expertise can be used to further develop our villages back at home. And also assist in ensuring that young people take community work serious. It's when you have taught a person about the society that they live in that they start to realize the role that they should play within that very same society. Now, if you're teaching someone about, you know, Europe, the first thing that they think of when they get their qualification is wall street and we want to change that perception which is deeply embedded in the current education system it's not by default that people think of wall street people think of overseas instead of thinking of their societies where they come from it's the education it's designed that way so until we can decolonize it and actually say This is South Africa, this is the material conditions. As a doctor, as a lawyer, as an accountant, as an engineer, this is your responsibility within your own country. I think then we can be able to move forward. But ultimately what we're doing is enforcing will. We understand that we cannot decolonize now. It might take about five to 10 years, but as long as there's will to do it, it will happen.
1: So, I think what's coming out for me that's really important for listeners to hear is that underlying the motivation for the protests that we are seeing around the country is a deep concern with society with the common good with the ways in which our country will develop and the ways in which students want to contribute to that development through all of the professions that they're studying would that be a fair summary
2: yeah, I, th- I think it's it's all about that. I mean, the protest now, it's highlighting a number of issues. And now these are a bunch of students who are realizing that, in fact, were members of communities before were students. And that's why they are not willing to back down. There are a number of issues that this movement has highlighted. Number one, it has highlighted the fact that our government in itself, it's still a white government with black faces, understand, whereby you have government officials who rather call us hooligans and barbarians instead of calling out the police brutality. It's not by default. It's because they take orders from white monopoly capital and they protect white monopoly capital at all costs. It cannot be that a black person, especially an elder black person, enjoys the brutality upon a young black person. What about that person's conscience? It shows you that these people are taking orders from the very same apartheid government that used to oppress black people. Now they they are oppressing them in in black faces, and that's issue number one. Number two, we're able to highlight the autonomy of universities and their arrogance in such a way that since we started the protest, the University of Witwatersrand wanted to continue with the academic problem, and now when you look as to why they want to continue with the academic program. It's not for the sake of the student, it's for the sake of them being able to exclude those who can pay and getting others who can be able to pay because it's a business. Have you ever asked yourself, why do you have so many administrative staff? The number of administrative staff is larger than that of lecturers. And every time where money is in shortage, instead of retrenching administrative staff they rather retrench lecturers it's because it's a business there's accounting there's money laundering there's a lot of accounting going on and as soon as you start interfering with that process of money cash flow they you you become an enemy and that's why we find ourselves with this opinion polling that's happening right now at birds university that is asking whether we should continue the academic program or we should not. It's simply because we have interfered with the cash flow. It's simply because money is not coming in. It's not because they want the students to be able to complete and graduate. At the end of the day, if that was true, they wouldn't have sent us the SMSs that they send us that if you didn't make an arrangement with the office, you're not going to write exams. So. We are highlighting a number of issues with this FISMA sport, and we are raising the consciousness of the system that we are subjected to as Black people, as poor people within this country, and we are putting it out to the public. And now they fear that. They fear it as much as they fear Black consciousness. We are the generation of Steve In as much as they fear Steve Biko, is as much as they fear us. And that's why they are trying by all means to demobilize us. I mean, you have the government who, instead of responding to the issue, they would rather say there's a third force that is enforcing regime change. Why don't they respond to the issue? Because it's a genuine call. And by the way, the very same government is the one that promised us free education. So it just shows you a number of things. Who runs the show here? It's white monopoly capital, and for as long as we are united and destabilizing whatever program that they they, they want to run, we will always be the bad ones in the eyes of society. That's why the media will never report the true essence of the story, because it's controlled by white monopoly capital.
1: Okay, so now we're having an opportunity for you to tell your story in your own way in this independent media space, which I think is a, a positive So you've spoken a lot about the principles and the passions that are underlying the student movement at the moment. And I think it's really important for those to be heard. Can you tell me more about the focus of the, the protests? Is the focus government or is the focus the universities? Because some might argue that universities can do very little without proper full state subsidies. Many have argued that over the 20 years since our democracy, state subsidies to universities have declined in real terms every single year while student numbers have increased. So what is the, in the students' view, the most appropriate target for these complaints and these actions? Is it government or is it university management?
2: Look, the primary target is the government because they are the ones who have the legislative and executive powers to enforce decisions. They are the ones that determine physical policies, government expenditure, and all of that. And that's why we are marching to the National Treasury on Friday to go and say, it's your responsibility to find the money for free education. It's your responsibility through your legislative and executive powers to enforce the corporate to contribute towards this free education. However, we can't leave university management behind. Why? Because universities have their own autonomy. And it means that they are also independent in their decision making. And in most cases, the decisions that they make are unfavorable to the majority of stakeholders within the university. Even lecturers themselves, they suffer from the same things that we suffer. They suffer from the same injustices that are made by the few on behalf of the main, but for the few. So it's capitalism at its best. You have a minority making decisions for the majority for the minority in the oppression of the majority. So there are two targets here. The primary one is the state and the second one is the university. With the university, we want to question the autonomy. We want to question the participation of all stakeholders. Why is it that you have a council that makes a decision on behalf of the majority of the university community. But when you look at those decisions, most of them, they tend to be unfavorable to the majority. They suffocate the majority. On issues of decolonization, that's why it has been taking a slow process because of that minority that doesn't want to change because they are gaining from these universities every time we pay fees. When you look at the council itself, it's made up of a lot of corporate people who I can guarantee you, they are gaining a lot of money. Right now, Habib is running a referendum or an opinion poll, so he calls it. He owns 35%, at least, of the company that is running that particular thing. He's going to gain certain money from that particular thing. So you see that it's a business. And that's why universities are also... A target because we want to question the autonomy that they have.
1: Okay, you've made quite a, a serious allegation there I think about the Vice-Chancellor owning a part of a company that's running the poll, so that's something that you know we need to check the facts of before we can yes. back back that kind of allegation up. You've spoken a lot about
0: majorities.
1: I'd like to ask about the state of student politics. So the SRC was elected yes. to represent students. Yes. Yet there's been, from what I understand, what I've seen on social media, what I've seen reported in some student media, there's been some conflicts and debates about leadership in the student movement at the moment. What is the situation at present? Because there is a group that calls themselves Fees Must Fall, there's the elected SRC, there's the EFF Student Command, and there are other groupings as well, and all of them seem to play a role in the protests. And at times, they sometimes seem to be in debate or opposition to one another. At other times, they seem to be quite unified. So could you give us some insight into what's going on in the leadership situation in the student movement?
2: Yes, there are certain issues of contestation, of leading and of that, but then the ultimate thing is that the SRC, it was elected constitutionally by the student populace and is the legitimate voice of the students. That's why even when we were questioning that referendum, the first thing that we said, we said, there's no way the vice chancellor can have a referendum while the SRC is still in office. It's only when the SRC is not in office, you can have a referendum pertaining to students. If anything, we are the legitimate people to run a referendum for students. And we must remember that there's a game of thrones here, whereby, for instance, you will find Factions within the ANC, you'll find the EFF who's against the, the, the ANC. So there's always political infiltration from national level, wanting to use students for particular benefits, for particular views. That's why you find that the space is highly contested politically, because people are driving certain mandates. But then we minimize that in ensuring that the SRC is the one that controls the narrative, is the one that drives the movement. However, because of we didn't want these tensions to demobilize the movement, we made compromises where we said, the movement itself must elect those that they trust to lead them to be in the forefront. And they did so. And in so doing, we are capping all those political infiltrations. Because I can tell you from a historical point of view that Students have always been used as pawns for political reasons. You would remember when Saso was formed by Steve Biko, there was Asa and Azazu, of which they had political infiltrations respectively from the PAC and the ANC, and hence Steve Biko saw the need to start Saso. Because once there's a political infiltration within a movement, it loses its focus to the genuine cause. It starts fighting battles that are not genuine. It starts fighting battles that are pushing people forward, but are not really pushing the course forward. So we have had those things, but we are tying as much as we can to keep political infiltration within this movement.
1: Okay, another question on politics. So the incoming SRC efforts is a progressive youth alliance. SRC. They won all of the seats in the election. The PYA is aligned to the ANC. Yes. The ANC is in government, and the government is the target of student protest and dissatisfaction right now. Yes. So how does this relationship play out between the ANC-aligned PYA, which is currently protesting against an ANC government?
2: Uh, let me first explain what the PYA is. The PYA is the Progressive Youth Alliance. It's made up of four structures. The YCL, which is the Young Communist League, the ANC Youth League, uh, SASCO, and the Muslim Student Association. Now, a lot of people have always scrutinized our alignment with the government, which is ANC. But then we don't take our mandate from the ANC, we take our mandate from the students themselves. That's why even last year when the students said, we want too much to the Tuli house. We had to march to the Tuli House. And by the way, even if we are aligned with the ANC, some of us are even members of the ANC or the ANC, we are concerned about the state of the ANC in itself. And we are taking it upon ourselves to fix those flaws that are there. We are taking it upon ourselves to re the movement and to take it back to its original principles. So, our alignment with the ANC does not anticipate what the movement seeks to achieve. If anything, it perpetuates it. Because if we are coming as ANC children and saying to the ANC, listen, they are more likely to listen rather than when it's EFF because they will see that as, a, as an attack more than it's, it's, it's a room of engagement. They will see it as an attack. They will wage war against that because of the political differences that are there. But when we come as the children of the ANC and we say, our parents, we are here to sit you down. Now it's time for you to listen to us. We are more likely to listen to us. And at the end of the day, it advances the cause that the movement seeks to achieve. So I don't think our alignment with the ANC is problematic in advancing the cause of the movement. If anything, it's very assisting.
1: So what we're seeing here is a new generation of political activists challenging the ANC from within.
2: Yes, yes.
1: A question about the goals and aims of the student movement. We're hearing loud and clear the message that what students are demanding is free, quality, decolonized education. We've spoken a bit already about what decolonized and quality education means to the movement. What does free education mean to the movement? Is it free for everyone? Free only for the poor? Are we talking about accessibility, affordability? Can you give us more insight into what students mean by free education? Because I think there's some debate and confusion about that.
2: Uh, at the moment, the movement is split between two. It's split between those who say free, quality, and decolonized education. Well, the decolonization would cover everyone, but the free part, there's a there's a group that says it should be for the poor. There's a group that says it should be for everyone. The group that says it should be for the poor, it's saying, look, we are also trying to cap the inequalities within society. And therefore those who can afford, they must continue paying. Where else this one who say education for all, they are saying, we are trying to create a classless student populace so that we can be more unified. Understand? We want to break all elements that seek to divide us. However," These ones that can afford will bear the tax burden, meaning that there will be wealth taxes, there will be more taxes for people who have money. While the other group says, but no, 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 no. Let's prioritize these ones who are poor. These ones can already pay. Let them continue paying. Once they don't pay, because most of them are trust funds babies, they're going to buy cars with that money, they're going to use it uselessly where else they could contribute towards the education in itself. So we're still caught up between those two groups and we're trying to find a measure. However, we're saying the priority should be the pool. What the government should be doing, it should be saying to us, okay, next year, uh, we're going to start with the first rollout of free education. We're prioritizing this bracket, starting from the lowest, going up. Then, as time goes, while they seek to amend the module and see its shortcomings and fix those things, they can say, now we're increasing the bracket now. We're moving from this bracket to this bracket up until we can cover everyone. But the priority at the moment is the poor black children of this country.
1: Okay, so students want to see a clear plan in place that firstly addresses the needs of poor students and progressively over... A reasonable number of years expands to include all students. Yes. Why were students unsatisfied with the offer that was made by government last week that there would be a zero increase for poor students in families earning up to 600,000 a month? Why were students not satisfied with
2: that? Let's put that into numbers. If you are saying that you are recommending that universities increase by 8% and you cover eight percent for the poor and missing middle. On average, it takes about hundred to hundred and twenty thousand for a student to cover their fees, tuition, accommodation, and food. Now let's say it's hundred uh, hundred thousand. So what you are saying is that now you are only going to take care of the eight thousand, which is the increase. Now, if a student could not afford hundred thousand last year, how do you expect them to afford it this year? Because I can tell you, as we speak, there are students who are going to suffer financial exclusion because they can't afford. If a student can't afford 9.3 at the beginning of the year, how do you expect them to be able to to afford 100k? So that's why we are not willing to accept what the minister has proposed, because it does not speak to resolving to the issue. And we can't keep protesting for free increments. We did that last year. We won that victory, we went back to class. We can't keep making this an annual event. Now we want people who are going to come and speak about free education. And it's very disappointing because and the Monday comes from the communist part, And free education within a state, it's a communism principle. According to me, he should be the first one to be driving this forward. Instead of saying that my department did what it could do best, will wait for the presidential commission. He should be the one who sits the presidential commission on the neck to say, in fact, you must come and report by the end of this year. He's a communist. Unless if he's captured by capital at the moment, because everyone seems to be captured by capital, He seem to be taking directives from white monopoly capital. So we're not willing to accept that. For as long as the government does not come out and speak about free education, we're not going to stop these protests. If needs be, we're going to mobilize other stakeholders of society and run this country ungovernable. And whichever government that is willing to give us free education, whichever party, we will lobby numbers for that party so that it's voted in and it gives us free education.
1: So this is quite a powerful promise that the student movement is making, that they are willing to throw their weight, their support behind it. The party that will deliver, I think that's quite an important message to yes. get out there. Can we talk a bit about protest tactics? I'm sure you will understand that, especially academic staff who are listening, who are a bit older, who are a bit more conservative, who have little kids to look after and so on, they get a bit freaked out when they see what they read as violent tactics. Can we talk about what happened last week at BITS with the stone throwing between the private security and some police? What is the movement's position on violent forms of protest and and peaceful forms of protest?
2: As the movement from onset, we denounced violence. We we were never violent at any point. The, The incidents between the security and the students happened. What had happened is that it was a long day. Being brutalized by police, some of our members are arrested. We were being policed from the morning up until we got here. And when we finally got here, after cooperating with the very same police that were throwing stun grenades at us and shooting us with the rubber bullets, after having cooperated with them to move from Parktown town to get to here, now we want to enter our space, which is Solomon House. That's where the heart of the movement is. Those are our safe words. That's where we discuss our strategies. We find private security. We want to enter. The first thing they do is beat women with batons. Now, you cannot expect me as a male cater to stand aside while a woman is being beaten by a man of such well, muscles in front of me. Anyone
1: is being beaten. Yeah.
2: You can't expect me to stand aside. Obviously, I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to protect that particular fellow cader that is being brutalized at that moment and that's how that violence erupted if we wanted to be violent if you look at grade hall it has many windows but the focus was on those security guards because we were responding to the violence that was inflicted upon us so students are not violent in any way we denounce violence and you, you can see after that all the much that we had there was no violence simply because you always instill the principle of high discipline and high morale
1: So the argument here is that there was only a sporadic and um, sporadic outbreak of violence in response to provocation. Yes and I think you know many staff in particular are very concerned about the huge police presence on campus and the discipline of police and private security It's a huge worry for many of us and it seems that students share that worry.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's why I said to you that you still have the very same Apartheid regime running the show here. The very same things that are happening now are the same things that were happening during the Apartheid eras. Where you would find police or military personnel camping at the University of Limpopo for about three years. In trying to police students, in trying to victimize students. White Monopoly Capital is the one that is running the show. They've, they have they've called police presence just to victimize us. They are spying on us, those police. That's their job. So it's it's very problematic that uh today, when you want to protest, there's a permanent court interdict. That is sent to you via email. That is unconstitutional. When an interdict is issued out, a sheriff must come and deliver it to your door. It must not be sent by an email. How do you have the entire student population as a respondent number seven in an issue that most of them were not even part of? That shows you the injustices of this system that are subjected to.
1: Does the student movement have any plans to challenge the interdict?
2: Yes, we have a, a, a legal team. That is looking into that. That's why even yesterday we were at court trying to challenge the referenda. Because at first it was a referenda, but when we got to court, the story changed. It was an opinion polling. So it shows you that there's a lot of unconstitutional principles that are being used to police students. And we want to make it clear to the listeners out there and to the government that we're tired of this militarisation of our campuses. This is not a military camp. It's a university where ideas should be exchanging, where there should be a contestation of ideas. So once you start making us feel unsafe because of the police presence, we can't even engage. Now when you're working as a group, you are being policed. You are followed by security guards. They want to see where you're going in a university space. Where we're supposed to have group works, where we're supposed to have group engagements. I mean, the people who are suffering here, in as much as we might look at it from a class analysis perspective, it's black people. It's black people. And every time we try to unite and resist the system, we're called hooligans. But whenever white people unite against something, they are seen as progressives. Why is it so? Last year, you had an entire team of a rugby beating black students, and nothing was said about that. In fact, in other social media platforms, it was being celebrated. So it means the life of black people in this country is still valueless. It still means nothing. We are just adding numbers. So that's why I keep iterating that we are fighting a white government in black faces.
1: What do you think? it will take to go back to class, do you think it's possible to maintain the protest alongside completing the academic year?
2: You know, these people, they try to make us look like rascals, like people who don't know what they're doing. We try to engage them while the academic progress. When you say
1: them, are you speaking about university management?
2: I'm speaking about both university management and government. We tried to engage them while the academic program was running through bodies like SAUs, SRCs were convened. They even submitted a model. But they were not willing to listen. It seemed like every time they want to listen to us when we shut down universities. It seems like shutting down universities is our only bargaining power. We don't find it fun to shut down universities. We want to learn. We want to write exams, we want to progress, but if that's the only way they are willing to listen to us, we will perpetually shut down these universities so that they can come and listen to the calls that we're making.
1: Is that the only way to be listened to? Are there any other ideas or proposals that students are kicking around or thinking about that could open up dialogue in a way that doesn't involve shutting down a campus?
2: As I said, that, these engagements, they don't start now. They start from last year's Fees Fall. We've been trying to engage these people while the universities were running, and they were not listening to us. Don't you find it somewhat a bit suspicious that immediately after Fees Fall, Reds university contracts its academic year? It's to silence the student.
1: What do you mean contracts the academic year?
2: Everything was pushed by two weeks.
1: You mean last year or this year? This year. Okay.
2: Whereby uh, by, by the second week of, of October, we're supposed to be writing, starting with the exams, and by the second week of November, we should be done. Mm. So they have contracted the academic program so that they put us under mm. a lot of pressure, mm. thinking that we won't question.
1: Well, I've been teaching at FITS for five years, and as far as I understand, that calendar is pretty, pretty normal. That
2: we start writing second or third week of october it's not normal yeah it's not normal if you remember well we used to even have breaks before exams we used to have a week break before exams so it's not normal it was contract contracted even 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 you look at our our june holidays they were contracted We, we spent about three weeks while other universities spent six weeks so that was done in order to silence and they, they target vets particularly because they know that we are the ones that dictate the national discourse. We are the ones that ensure that a national mandate is taken forward. So we are going to continue shutting down, not because we like shutting down. That's how they want to listen to us.
1: If you were invited to open democratic, perhaps independently, mediated discussions and negotiations, would the SRC participate?
2: Yes, that's what I'm saying. We've been in these... uh, And
1: surely we need more.
2: I mean, look, at the end of the day, we need a solution. We don't need more commissions. We don't need more negotiations. That will waste our time. We'll find ourselves where we are next year if we open a can of worms of such things. What we need now is just for the government to come out and commit. It's simple.
1: So, when students say we want free, quality, decolonized education now, when that word "now," do they simply want a commitment now? Because it, it's, I imagine, it takes a little bit of time to change a system.
2: It's a commitment with a reasonable timeline. That's why I said to you, if they were say, to say to us, "Okay." Next year, you are having a complete moratorium on, on fee increments. There will not be fee increments. 2018, we are rolling out the initial pilot of free education. Or they can even say, next year, we are rolling out the first initial piloting of free education. Everyone that qualifies for NEFSAS, they don't have to pay back the loan.
1: So that would be a step in the right direction that would help to feel that demands is being met and that progress is being
2: made. Exactly, that's all we want.
1: Do you have any messages for staff and students who haven't necessarily joined in with the movement on the streets or in the the various marches? What kind of support might they be able to offer? How do you think you can convince them to
2: join the cause? To the people that are bystanders, I call them bystanders, the system will try to convince you that the call that we are making is impossible. You must come to the ground, come engage us, come look at our research team, come look at our legal team, come look at our test teams and you will realize that what we are calling for is not impossible. In fact it could be done tomorrow if only this political will. Now to those who can come to us because of whatever reasons they have, I am saying if you want to be part of the movement. There are a lot of forms of protesting. Likely, we have social media. You must go on social media, ensure that you speak in a way that advances the movement in it seeking to achieve a particular cause, which is free equality and decolonized education. Wherever you are, you must mobilize the people that you find around yourself. Quentin them to the reality of the issue so that when we call for a national action if this government does not listen the day we are saying we are holding the economy at ransom we can have support from all stakeholders of society but to those who can be able to come they must come there are documents we engage perhaps you are sitting there and you have the best solution that we need but simply because the system has instilled this perception or this paradigm that what we are calling for is unrealistic. You are keeping quiet. You must come and join us. We are not violent in any way. We don't carry any weapons. We are just peaceful people asking for the right to learn. That's all.
0: Just
1: peaceful people asking for the right to learn. Yes. We hope that
0: you found this conversation useful. Although parents and academics and indeed other student leaders, might have some differences of opinion from Kefense. What comes through very clearly is the strong social underpinning to the current student protests. I really hope that through ongoing dialogue and communication, students, staff and university administrators can find ways to work together to put pressure on government to come up with a new funding model for higher education.